And now it's time for the podcast, Sustainable Dad. Duncan here for Sustainable Dad. And at the end of the day, money talks, doesn't it? Paper versus plastic, meat versus veggies. What are the economics of social responsibility? I had no clue that there was such thing as an ecological economist. Well, I've had a chance to catch up with one. His name is Dr. Neil Perry. And uh, he has some incredible insights on what we buy, how we buy it, where we buy it from, and some really big thinking ideas about the intersection between making money, sustainability, and caring for our environment. Now, when you hear economist, you might think to yourself, oh, this is going to get really boring. But really, at the end of the day, the way we make money is really important because it's the way that we're going to sway change. You see, culture, you really need to be able to make a penny. You need to be able to make a dollar. Um, And so it can't necessarily be all about the environment, which is sometimes a little bit uncomfortable to hear. And so in this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about the ideas of property rights, cross-border pollution, circular economics, and they seem like big terms, but let me break it down this way. The Amazon rainforest is on fire and France says we want to step in and help. That's cross-border politics, but it's really significant if the Amazon rainforest contributes 20% of the global oxygen. Who has the right to control that land and how do we communicate and intersect between two countries that don't necessarily get along well? Well, Neil Perry is going to break down a bit of that conversation for us now. Uh, This podcast, of course, was heard first on Hope 103.2 as part of the Hope for the Planet series. But I wanted to share it here on Sustainable Dad because I think it's an important conversation and possibly one that you haven't thought about. I know for a fact I hadn't thought about it. Here is Dr. Neil Perry sharing on the ecology of economics. Oh, thanks. How are you, Duncan? Not too bad. Mate, I've really been curious about kind of running down this rabbit hole of sustainability, uh, climate change, and getting my head around it. Because honestly, I I don't really know what it looks like. And, And one of the areas I've really wanted to go is kind of looking at sustainable economics. And that's why I'm turning to you as a senior research lecturer. I figure you've got some insights on this. Oh, thanks, Duncan. Um, yeah, I'm actually an ecological economist. So yes. what that kind of means is that, um, you know, we look at the, the economy as part of a broader ecological system. So certainly sustainability um, is big in that particular area. Um, I think I can give you a couple of insights from that particular well, discipline, yeah. if that might be helpful. I'd love, to, um, I'd love to understand further what ecological economics looks like. What What are you looking at when you're looking at ecological economics? Well, yes, as I said, we we kind of view the economy as part of a broader ecological system. So in traditional economic systems, um, the economy was kind of seen as an end in itself and was viewed in terms of its impact with nature. Nature was viewed as some inputs and also we produced some outputs like waste and pollution, which went back out into it. But it wasn't looked in a whole systems framework. Um, ecological economics tries to bring 
bring it down to a, a much more holistic systems framework so that you know we're looking at the economic system and we're looking at the throughputs that go through that economic system like the material and the energy and we're trying to reduce those throughputs um, we don't want to impact people's pleasure or, or happiness or anything like that but um, we do want to reduce the throughput per um, dollar of benefit if you want to look at it that way so we want to use less resources and less material um, and still get the same kind of happiness which is in a lot of times it's actually possible to do that okay so i mean i'm, I'm guessing that this kind of connects then to this idea of carbon production do you know like this idea that um a person living somewhere uh, uses or consumes a certain footprint of carbon. Is that kind of connected to what you're talking about? It is. It is. It is. Um, you know, every time you consume something, um, it, it, it has carbon embodied in it. So it, it was produced even from the very first stages where some raw materials were taken out of the ground. There's some carbon emissions associated with that. Um, then when it was manufactured, there was some electricity associated with that, and that produces carbon emissions as well. So everything that we consume has carbon embodied within it. That is, we've used carbon um, to, to make it. So we all are impacting on that kind of you know, carbon emissions and global warming is the end result of that. Um, so one good way to think about it is uh, what's called the IPAT equation. So... That's I-P-A-T, I-P-A-T. So I is for impact, and in this case, we're talking about carbon emissions. Yeah. Um, P is for population. That's the size of the population. A is for affluence. That's how much consumption we have per person. And T is for technology, and that's about the amount of carbon emissions we use per dollar of consumption. So it's, it's actually an identity. We call it an identity because it's true by definition. So it's saying carbon impact is equal to the size of the population, obviously, yep. um, because you know we, we're consuming something and then times our consumption per person um, and then times the amount of carbon emissions per dollar of consumption. So if you look at it that way, you've got, okay, we want to reduce the amount of carbon emissions per person, right? So that's your T, that's the T in the IPAT equation. Um, but even that, you know, it's not necessarily going to lead to a reduction in carbon emissions as a whole because if the population's rising or if we're consuming more per person, then even though we're reducing carbon emissions per dollar of consumption, we might still be having an overall impact, an overall increase in carbon emissions. So we need to do a lot of different stuff. We need to do, you know, more efficient. Um, use of our resources, more efficient use of our carbon emissions, but we need to think about our affluence and how much we consume per person and then the population issue as well. So I would guess then if we see an explosion of wealth and people moving through classes in, I'm just, you know, China yep. and India, yep. th then what we would also see because of that afflu affluence um, yep. is an increase of the amount of carbon consumed per person. Is that right? Um, we'd see an increase in carbon use yep. as a whole, um, but not necessarily per person because they could be employing, um, importing more efficient technology from us and from America and from Germany um, so that they're using less emissions per dollar of consumption 
okay? Yep. But because of the size of the population and then the affluence level, you're right, um, they could be end up consuming either in total more emissions or more emissions per person. But the point is you still could be getting a more efficient use of resources in that case, but because their affluence is rising, that's more carbon emissions per person, or because population's rising, that's more carbon emissions in general. Yes. So, so this then, I guess, becomes for you a bit of a life cycle analysis where you go, okay, as as the population increases and expands and we look at new technologies, then we do need to kind of understand where whatever the resource is we're using comes from and the processes involved because that then directly affects the carbon footprint. Is, is yeah. that right? Yeah, that's that's about right. I mean, you know, a lot of different things. Do you look at paper bags? Paper bags better than plastic bags? Um, all these types of things. I mean, plastics are very good example because it's actually you know obviously there's big problems with plastic and there's all the garbage in the oceans as you've probably heard about yeah um but you know it's also done a lot of good because it's it's helped um you know reduce wastage so food wastage for a long period of time so yeah you do have to think about the life cycle and the amount of carbon embodied in everything so plastic bags versus paper bags you know, which one's better, you know, carbon. I mean, the paper bags obviously require some kind of, um, you know, forestry industry. It goes through a process. That process is, is quite dirty. Yep. Um, and, you know, carbon's, uh, plastic's obviously dirty as well. So, yeah, you do need to consider those types of things, yeah. Yeah, I guess, it, you know, certainly for, like, plastics, you, I remember we spoke with um, one of the senior research guys for the Great Ocean Cleanup, yeah. Um, and the extraordinary work those guys are doing because, I mean, if you can harvest the plastic from the great ocean gyre in the Pacific Ocean, then you've got this incredible opportunity for recycling and repurposing those plastics. And because you're recycling and repurposing, I'm guessing you, you can have a lower carbon footprint with an already produced ca- plastic that you're repurposing. Yes, in theory, um, you could. No, no, I mean, I would support that totally. And that's what the circular economy is all about, right? Like yeah. using the wastage from one um, thing as, as input to another. Uh, you do have to be careful there because recycling doesn't... I mean, you, the materials are still being used to begin with. You can't rely on that recycling, I don't think. Um, so you've got to reduce the amount of, uh, you know, initial use of resources yeah. as well. And then obviously recycle what you do use, um, but you need to reduce that initial use of the of the materials as well. Is this an idea? And sorry, I mean we've obviously chatted before this interview, but you, you had this idea of absolute versus relative decoupling. Is this kind of connected to this conversation? It is. Um, so when I mentioned that we could become more efficient. Mm at our use of resources, that is relative decoupling. Um, But if population and affluence both rise, then you're not getting absolute decoupling. So you're still having an an overall um, increase in the amount of emissions, but, you know, your technology is becoming more efficient. And that's obviously a really good thing. Um, But like you pointed out, if you've got, 
you know, rising middle class in India and China. Their affluence is rising. They're consuming more. Um, they might be consuming more carbon-intensive goods like more meat or something like that. Mm. Um, and you've got rising population. Then, you know, the, the the technology improvement doesn't overall, well, it helps, but it doesn't stop the problem from occurring. Well, and certainly, I mean, you mentioned meat just then. Is that you see from a lot of people who want to talk about sustainability is that meat meat is a big issue. Um, can you kind of break that down? Because I hear people screaming, like, we just need to be vegetarians and stop the meat, stop eating the meat, because that's that's a huge source of carbon. Yeah. Well, depending on the um, the way that you measure carbon emissions, mm. um, you know, because sometimes they break it up into, like, uh, electricity versus um, it's transport, right, versus land use. Yeah. Sometimes they break it up into the goods that you produce, from all those things because producing meat or other food uses transport and it uses electricity and it uses land. So if, it depends which way you look at it. Um, but if you break it up into goods, then meat consumption is worth a lot of carbon emissions. It's the biggest uh, emitter in terms of those those things. So, yes, it's a big problem. Um you know, you think about things like fast foods, for example. There's, you know, a lot of stuff in the U.S. about um, where the food comes from for those animals, so the feedlots, and that comes from, you know, destroyed forests in other parts of the world, mm. producing soy and corn and other other products that cows and other animals can use. So, yes, my understanding, um, and I haven't done any research on it specifically, but my understanding is that that would make a big impact is people reducing their, their meat consumption. Um, yeah. But of course, there's other stuff that we need to do as well. It was interesting. I was talking to a CSIRO researcher, and she was saying that the, the similar to what I think you said at the beginning about the idea of enjoyment is that if you want to enjoy something, then you need to be aware for sustainability purposes that you might need to offset that enjoyment. Right, so if okay. you if you want to enjoy eating a steak, you know, once a week, twice a week, then because there's such a large footprint associated with that, and you're trying to you know create a sustainable style of life, then you will need to reduce your carbon consumption in other areas, which will then allow you to have a steak every once in a while. Because you know, I think to myself, I'm bit of a fan of barbecue and I do like the occasional steak but what that means for me personally is that I'm going to have to make some sacrifices in my life so that I can enjoy that steak. Yeah that makes sense. Um, offsets has a particular meaning though ah. in, in economics um, and in these particular areas like there's there's offsets in biodiversity, there's offsets in, in carbon emissions and sometimes those offsets aren't legitimate and they can actually I don't know, provide an excuse for people to <laughs> do bad stuff um, <laughs> because they know they can just offset it or something like that. So you do have to be careful. But the way you described it, I think, was very good. I mean, you, you said that you were going to sacrifice in other areas to have a steak once a week, which I think is, is definitely legitimate, yeah. Well, I mean, like I think if I'm trying to get to a, a, to a really simple, concrete analysis, let's say I want to have a steak once a week and what I'm going to do is instead of taking a flight on a holiday twice a year with my family I'll do a drive 
somewhere for a holiday yeah. twice a year yeah. with my family, right? Which means that the carbon that I've offset by not flying means that I can have a stake, right? I think that sounds legitimate, yep. Okay. Okay. I, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating the last time we had a conversation was this idea that you said um, we don't need human-made capital. Sorry, it's this idea between human-made capital and natural-based assets. Yes. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, sure. So um, it, this, again, is, is coming from ecological economics. It's not yeah. I wouldn't want to say it's my research, but it's something that I've certainly taught and, and believe in and incorporated into my writing and stuff like that. So um, this was a distinction made a long time ago in economics, but only really taken up in like 70s and, and 80s when ecological economics began. And it's really the idea that, um, you know, there's when you make goods, right, you need certain types of resources. And in economics, it's typically been land, labour and capital. That's what you need to make, for example, I don't know, some corn, yeah. right? You need you know, it's a, a thrasher and you need all these other things and, and then you need the human labour. But what they pointed out is that um, the natural capital is also needed and natural capital can be things like clean air, for example. So, you know, you don't want to produce corn in a really polluted environment you want clean air so that's that's your natural capital and that natural and human made capital work together to actually produce goods they don't work in isolation and they're not substitutable you can't substitute more and more um, you know tractors which are human made capital for clean air like they're non-substitutable between the two Um, so yeah, it's interesting that in the in economic theory, um, and it's a, I think a good reason for this, but in economic theory, that perfect substitutability between human and man-made capital is kind of fundamentally assumed in the theory. So that leads to particular conclusions when you look at sustainable futures, because you can you can get this thing called weak sustainability, mm. which is legitimate in the theory, and what that says is that you can substitute human-made capital for natural capital. So we could reduce a forest if that is increasing human-made capital. If we're investing that in human-made capital, that's a legitimate way to proceed to sustainability. But ecological economics says that's not right, that you need the natural and human-made capital to work as complements with each other. So, you know, classically what they say is, you know, what's a sawmill human-made capital without a forest, you know, what's a refinery without oil? Yeah. So they work together, right? Um, yeah. And when they work together, that leads to different conclusions. That's strong sustainability. You need to maintain um, both human-made and natural capital together, not just as an aggregate. You need to maintain each individual part to get a sustainable future. I feel like, though, that becomes a real challenge when, let's say, Air, right? Air is a natural-based asset, right? Yeah. Is that if a country damages air in one area and that's really necessary for a developing nation, but they have no control over the polluted air that they're receiving from the neighbouring country, right? Is that who who owns the air? And yeah. not only that, that, that becomes kind of a social justice issue, is that you, you've got to say to one country... Your actions then directly influence developing nations with stuff that you don't necessarily see or feel. Like you can't see or feel air, right? And who yeah. owns it? 
Yeah, it's a good... Well, you've just touched on a huge amount of areas just there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Um, so let me see. So you t- touched on cross-border um, pollution. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a real problem. You also touched on um, the idea that in, in economics, like orthodox economics, the, the real sustainability environmental problems are really driven by a lack of property rights. That's the way it's described, a lack of property rights. Yeah. over the environment and this this came from um a guy called uh, Ronald Coase and um what that means is that you know your your the country that you just described you said it didn't it didn't own anything right if it does own it it's got an incentive to look after it and you know because they can profit from it you could potentially profit from it but because it's a public good you know clean air and because there's you know there's this situation where one country can affect another there's no incentive to look after it and that's really what has been described as causing all the problems um, environmental and sustainability problems so the solution to that is to create markets I don't necessarily agree with that but um, the solution is to create markets over the environment so they do that through carbon markets markets for biodiversity markets for sulfur dioxide mm. markets for nitrogen oxide um, and that way you've kind of in a proxy kind of way you've created uh, an ownership of the environment and a lot of economists would believe that that's the way to go and to take it even further um, so yeah it's it's to me um, you know I don't I think that works perfectly well in theory and I understand the theory behind it. I think in practical situations it doesn't necessarily because there's a lot of different power relations involved under under defining and refining those markets. So Yo, particular got... players that, that pollute a lot, for example, get a lot of advantages. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I was going to say that, you know, a marketplace is all well and good, but oftentimes what I find is, that, you know, it's like a... A developing nation really struggles, yes. and because they don't necessarily have the GDP, the power, or the finances, is that the countries that are doing the most damage don't necessarily have the accountability to fix it. Very good. That's right. And that's the political economy of it. Um, and you know, even when they were defining early on who's, who is responsible for the emissions, that was defined by hegemonic power, which is all the industrialised countries, right? So yeah. countries like Australia and the US could just export all their coal and not have any responsibility over its over its uh, the emissions that come from it. So they became that they defined all these different areas um, of of emissions. So there was scope one, scope two, scope three. Mm. And all we had to care about was scope one, I think it was. Could be scope one and scope two. But the scope three stuff, the exporting of coal and all that, we don't have any responsibility for whatsoever. So in the in the official accounts, I mean, um, we do in from a moral um, position, but not from the accounts that were driven and, and written into those particular agreements. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess this gets really serious because like, I think, you know, like initially I was thinking to myself, well, I think about the, you know, Amazon River, the Yangtze, um, you know, all these rivers that run through countries. And I'm like, well, that's in a country. But like a Pacific Ocean, if we're talking about property rights, is there's a certain amount of pollution that's flowing out of every country into a Pacific Ocean, but it also 
borders a huge amount of countries is then surely it becomes a global operation to take responsibility. And I kind of feel for, you know, for instance, the Great Ocean Cleanup. There's there's kind of one guy who's rallied a global operation to jump on board, but it's fairly small. Mm. And I don't know necessarily if they're, you know, cleaning it up at the at the source of the problem. Like you're pulling out the particles that are already in there, but there's still a whole bunch of other particles going in. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a difficult one. But usually, when when something becomes beyond, when something becomes really bad, like the ozone layer, yeah, um, or global warming, that's when you do get international cooperation. But even then, it's imperfect. That the the ozone layer, the the body, the, the the national and international body that formed the Montreal Protocol, it was called, to address ozone, was really successful um, in terms of getting people to participate and yeah. also to comply. Like all, Every country jumped on board, um, and I'm going to tell you a reason why that is in a minute, but then you look at the, the Kyoto and it was just a struggle. And the US There's still a struggle. and Australia didn't join, and it's still a, still a struggle. And the reason is... Yeah, there's many reasons, many, many reasons. But one of the major reasons is, again, a political economy issue in that, you know, the U.S. companies um, had control of a, a, of a substitute product for, you know, CFCs, which were causing all the ozone problems, right? Yeah. So they had the substitute product for that, um, and they could then go get really on board behind... Uh, this kind of move to reduce ozone-emitting um, properties. And then, of course, if the US gets on board, everyone gets on board because there was a simple rule in that is if you aren't with us, you can't trade with us. And it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that was the basic kind of mechanism. Yeah. If you're not with us, you can't trade with us on those particular goods. So everyone had an incentive to get on board because the US had a substitute and so the U.S. would profit from it, so they were really happy. Um, and then everyone joined in and said, well, we have to really um, yeah. jump on board. But that's not the case with carbon emissions, and it might not be the case with plastics. But first you needed to get really bad and get into people's eyes, which it's starting to. Um, then you might get a, some kind of cooperative, international cooperative to, to address the issue, and then you get political... <laughs> Um, issues come into it. So maybe they address the source, which is obviously the use of plastics um, and yeah. the types of plastics, um, or they might just address the, the outcome. And, yeah, so it really depends on the the, the issue and who's getting on board um, behind it. Well, it's a, it's a modern global economy now, so we just need China to say, I've got the substitute for both those products. and That would help. If you're yep. not on board, you don't get to trade with us, right? And then we could all just yep. fall in line and go, okay, well, China's got the solution. We'll jump in with them. Yep, that's right. And note that that's not a market solution. That's a what's called a standard in economics. You're creating a technology standard. You either use this or you don't trade with us, right? So that's a technology standard. It did work in that Montreal situation. Um, and if, yeah. Which we've been using in computers for years, right? Is that you go, okay, this is a standard protocol for communication. And everyone goes, okay, well, that's the only way we're going to be able to communicate. So let's do that. Sure. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to now. Let's let's take all this because this has been really fascinating. But if I wanted to get more passionate about um, ecological economics, where does it start for me at home? Uh, at home. Where yeah. At home. At home. Good question. So it, it, it's really ecological economics. Really about reducing throughput. Um, so you want to be using less. Goods with less packaging, mm-hmm. um, goods with no packaging. So you want to eat fresh, fresh food. You want to eat um, the fresh food that comes from locally sourced areas. Uh, again, that can be sometimes that's not as good but in terms of the life cycle analysis because sometimes economies of scale, you know, in a big um, production place offshore, um, could be using less carbon emissions than the locally sourced stuff. But usually it's the distribution, the, the amount of distribution of the food yeah. that causes all the carbon emissions. So you want to source locally. Uh, you want to use fresh food rather than you know processed food. M- most of this stuff helps your health as well, of course. Um, what else? So you want to be you know, having solar power, solar panels on your roof. Um, that way you've got, you know, you're using less of coal-fired power station electricity and more of your own. Yeah. Um, you want to have an electric car if possible. Of course, that's very difficult in Australia at the moment, but it won't be in 10 years' time. Um, I wouldn't have thought. I, I really hope they come down from about $150,000. Yeah, I know. <laughs> They're very expensive. Well, the UK has, uh, you know, 13 or 14 um, products that are under 60000 So, you know, you expected that. In, in our dollars, I mean. So you expect that to come come down in the future. I just need uh, one in about a 2008 Corolla price range. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think mostly for us, it's about our energy use in our house and mostly about our food consumption. So you can reduce your carbon footprint through your choices that you make in that, in that regard. Phenomenal. Neil, uh, Senior Research Lecturer at uh, Western Sydney University, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. No worries, Duncan, any time. All right, that was the second week on sustainability and economics. Gosh, there's so much to think about. I mean, these things kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say they keep me up at night, but I just keep on pondering, is there a better way to do it, you know? And, I, and I'm not trying to descend into socialism, but I would love it if there was the ability for us to earn a significant chunk of change and then invest that wisely, but also benefit the environment. I think, you know, like you're starting to see these really incredible organizations stepping up as corporations and saying, we want to do something sustainability-wise. Google has done that. I know that, for instance, in Australia, I believe, IKEA's chief executive officer is also the chief sustainability officer. And you wouldn't probably know that about IKEA, but they've actually got a real uh, key, keen awareness of how to be sustainable and have sustainable best practices. And we're starting to see that across the world, especially within the corporate sector, big conglomerates stepping up and saying, we need to do something in terms of sustainability. And that's really exciting. Um, And it also starts at home with us. What are we doing and how are we using our money? And is it the best possible way? Are we using it wisely? 
Anyway, that's it from me, Sustainable Dad. Feel free to follow me on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. Drop me a line if you've got any questions or you want to hear an interview with someone. Maybe I can sort it out for you. Let me know. Duncan Robinson. My tag is Ultra Robbo. Yep, it's not very professional, but it's the one I've got. See you next week.